Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. So the first question, where are we in Israel's history? Well, we're in, a, we're in a critical moment in Israel's history. And the entire order of society is shifting and changing. Israel, the people of God, has been ruled over by judges um, and God has raised up different judges um, at different points. And, and at this moment, they're transitioning from judges into a monarchy. Uh, they're going to anoint kings, and then they're going to be led by kings going forward. Now, God had raised up each of these judges, um, and they were people that would preside over um, the people of God. And they would handle matters of moral judgment. They would often defend off attacks from um, neighboring enemies, um, people that were trying to defeat them um, and to steal their land, that sort of thing. And if you read the book of Judges, um, many of these judges themselves had quite serious moral flaws. Um, and so we get this questionable authority um, in place. And so as the nation grew, which was essentially descended from Jacob, who had 12 sons, and the nation of Israel, and as that grew and grew, it almost became kind of a little bit more disparate, a little bit harder to handle. It was a collection of families and tribes, um, and with all of the um, widespread corruption and thing that was going on at the time, um, they were moving from what was a kind of loosely knit alliance between tribes and families. Um, they're moving into this more unified kingdom under one single authority. And, and, and actually, it's quite a pivotal moment. Um, and uh, we see that this na the nation of Israel really comes into its own um, over these next two generations of kings. So Saul and then David really is kind of the pinnacle um, of Israel's history. Um, we'll look at that in a second. But who is this guy, Samuel? Well, Samuel was the last of these judges. Samuel had been one of the judges um, from that book, the long line of judges that would preside over Israel. Um, he's a faithful man. Um, he's a very faithful man of God. He's dearly loved and respected amongst the people of God. Um, and Samuel is also um, a priest and a prophet. That makes him quite unique in that he's a judge, but he's also a priest and he's also um, a prophet. As a priest, he would represent the people to God. And so the nation of Israel would essentially have priests that would represent them to God. They would make the sacrifices. They would often lead the people in certain ceremonies and uh, repentance and those sorts of things. They would lead the people of God in, in that facet. But also as a prophet, he would actually speak God's voice to his people. And so Samuel sits in this unique position of representing the people to God, but then also representing God to the people. And he provides this dialogue between the people um, and God. Hence, he was quite a uh, uniquely positioned and very well-respected person amongst um, the people of God. He's a faithful man. He's obedient. And through his obedience, Samuel is the guy that kind of oversees this transition from a line of judges through to a monarchy with kings. In fact, Samuel anoints the first two kings, Saul and David. Um, we read about that in 1 Samuel. Um, and so then it, it leaves us with the question, well, why did Israel even want a king? Well, it was God's intention from the very beginning 
that he would be their king, that God himself would be their king. But God's people kind of lost sight of that. And amidst all of the corruption that was going on at the time, particularly we actually read in 1 Samuel with Samuel's sons themselves who were kind of helping him lead. He was an old man at this point, And they were kind of getting into all sorts of things, taking bribes and all sorts of stuff. We read about it in 1 Samuel. Um, And the people come to Samuel and they say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And then God responds in 1 Samuel chapter 8 in verse 7. He says, because Samuel's grieved by this, because he knows God's plan to be king for his own nation. And then God says to Samuel, they've not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. You see, they didn't trust God to lead, guide, and provide for them anymore. But in God's infinite wisdom and mercy, he knew this was going to happen. He knew this was going to happen, and he'd made a plan for it. Um, In Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, verses 14 to 15. This is years and years and years and years before this moment takes place, before the people even come and say, we want a king. Years and years before, decades before. Um, in Deuteronomy 17, um, when God's speaking and they write the law down, um, and from verse 14, it says, when you come to the land, this is God speaking to the people, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. You see, not only will God allow them to have a king, but God is going to choose for them and handpick who that king is going to be. And this is the moment we arrive at. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 10, the first few verses... Saul has met Samuel while he's out looking for donkeys. uh, And essentially, he meets him and Samuel, and God speaks to Samuel and says, this is the man that you're going to anoint as king. And so Samuel invites him for dinner. They sit down and he anoints him as king over Israel. And Saul is just like, what is going on? And then we pick up in verse 17. So this has all happened in private. And now verse 17, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. And then they sought him. He could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there still a man to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? 
There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his home. You see, Samuel has gathered all of God's people together. He's called them all together so that what he's done in private, what God has revealed to him in private, and what he's done in anointing Saul, God is going to demonstrate publicly that Saul is his chosen man. He gathers them all together, and then they draw lots, all 12 tribes of Israel, and they're just cut down, lot after lot after lot, until eventually it falls to Saul. Now, this is, this is, this is a monumental moment in their history. This is a turning point where they turn from a, a history of judges um, to a monarchy, to kings. The moment that they've been crying out for themselves. Um, this is a moment where God is going to demonstrate his grace and provision for them once again, even after they've rejected his kingship. And God's chosen and anointed leader is missing. <laughs> He's missing. It's like, where's he gone? And so they go back to the Lord and they say, well, is there another one that's still to come? And he says, yeah, he's hiding. He's hiding amongst the baggage. Go and find him. Now imagine um, on that morning of his coronation, King Charles III disappears. Right? With, with, with the whole world turning its attention to I'm not quite sure where it'll happen, probably Westminster Abbey. The whole world turning its attention to this one focal point, and King Charles has gone to his castle in Scotland, one of them, and he's gone shooting or playing polo or something else that kings do, I don't know, and he's nowhere to be found. At that moment, I reckon as a nation, we would probably start to question his ability to lead we'd probably have some serious reservations around his integrity to his duties and responsibilities. You'd definitely lose confidence in him as a head of state. This guy's going to represent us to other nations, to other people, and he's not even prepared to turn up to his own coronation. What? And yet in this moment, we see that God's people are so blinded by their own solution. Give us a king like all the other nations. They're so blinded by their rejection of God. They're so blinded by their own pragmatism and desire for what they want that they just want to be like every other nation. And they go and they take him and they make him king and they shout, long live the king. And he's head and shoulders above everybody else. He's super impressive. And we're going to look at, we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at Saul and asking the question, why was Saul such a reluctant king? Why, when the entire nation turned to look at this moment, he was nowhere to be found? In fact, he'd run off and was hiding in the baggage. He was hiding. You see, this baggage that he was hiding amongst was very real. It was physical. There was a lot of stuff, right? They, 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 were, they were moving from place to place. 
And so where everybody had been called together, um, they, they, I mean, everybody would have come together in one place. So there would have been people camping. There would have been all sorts of stuff. People would have bought their um, armor. They would have bought households. They would have bought everything. And he's just hiding amongst all of this stuff. But it was also a very real emotional and spiritual baggage that Saul was carrying. It was baggage not that he was hiding behind, but that was actually he was carrying within himself that actually caused him to run away and to hide. And as we zoom out on Saul's life, we start to get a clearer picture of perhaps why he's hiding. Well, Saul felt inadequate. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, um, so, a couple of, so the chapter before, uh, I mentioned it, Saul had been out looking for his father's donkeys that had got lost. Um, and he meets Samuel. Um, he goes to Samuel to see if Samuel, who's the prophet, can help him find these donkeys. Um, and uh, Samuel, when he sees Saul and God says, this is the man that you're going to anoint, Samuel all of a sudden says, okay, well, why don't you come for dinner? Come for dinner. Come into my house. He invites him in. He creates space for him. And Saul says this in response. He says, I am, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? You see, Saul, Saul sees himself as inadequate. He sees himself as inadequate even to be entertained by Samuel, this great revered leader of Israel. And then just a few verses later, Samuel is anointing him as king of Israel. And Saul is humbled by this whole experience. And when he goes home to his uncle, to, to, whose donkeys he's looking for, when he goes home to his uncle, he doesn't even tell his uncle. He's still trying to work this whole thing out. He views himself as inadequate. He's inadequate for the task. He's not fit for the task. And it's understandable that Saul would have felt somewhat inadequate. It's a massive moment that's just happened. This, this revered man of God has just anointed him as king. And so he's trying to work all of this out. But you see, God has a habit of taking those that are humble and lowly and using them to confound the proud and the worldly wise. You see, this was an opportunity for Saul to allow God to use him. But later we see that Saul would take matters into his own hands just to try and get ahead, just try and stay on top. He'd even try and kill political opponents to try and stay on top. He tries to kill David multiple times, um, who is going to be the next king. And you see, Saul, he's found amongst the baggage because he can't see beyond all of his own inadequacies. He doesn't trust that God will equip him to rule in spite of those inadequacies and empower him to serve God as king. Secondly, Saul was insecure. Saul feared what people thought of him. In 1 Samuel uh, chapter 15, um, so a couple of chapters after um, our passage today, Saul, uh, God instructed Saul to attack, to defeat the Amalekites and all of their animals. He was to completely eradicate them, just absolutely decimate their army, kill all of the people, kill all of the animals. He was going to um, get rid of them. And yet Saul 
crushes the Amalekites, but he spares their animals. And we actually see the people of God actually come and take a lot of the animals, the best of their animals, and then they make them as offerings to God. And you think, well, that's a noble thing to do, except for the fact that it's not what God had told him to do. God had told him to eradicate them, defeat the Amalekites, and defeat all of their animals. And then the reason that Saul gives for this disobedience is found in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 24. He says to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. You see, he cared more about what people thought of him than the instruction that God had given him. He obeyed the people's voice instead of obeying God's voice. Again, Saul was found amongst the baggage because he feared man rather than God. He was more concerned with what people would think or what they thought of him than he was than obeying God. Thirdly, Saul was intimidated. Saul was intimidated uh, by people. It's interesting that when they, when, they, when, when, when they take Saul and they bring him before uh, the people, he's, he's head and shoulders above everybody else. He's a man of incredible stature. He's the guy who walks into a room with presence. You know those people? They walk into a room and you just feel that they've arrived, right? He's that guy. And yet inwardly, he, 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 he feels threatened by other people. Although outwardly, he's very impressive and he carries himself well. He's threatened by those around him. And actually, we see this throughout his life. He actually feels most threatened by David, who is the next king after Saul. Now, Steph is preaching on David next week, so no spoilers. Um, but as things begin to decline for Saul... God um, speaks to Samuel and tells Samuel to go and anoint David um, as king over Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, um, Samuel actually anoints David as king whilst Saul is still alive, right? If you want to put a target on someone's back, that's how you do it, <laughs> right? He anoints him as king while Saul, the king, is still alive, Right? And, and, and what you're going to see is God's provision as he cares and looks after David um, until David eventually becomes king. And then later, David is a mighty warrior for Saul. He's brought into Saul's court as one of his advisors, one of his warriors um, eventually. And in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 8 and 9, Saul said, um, they have ascribed to David tens of thousands. David has killed tens of thousands. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Saul was jealous for David. He was jealous for, for, for David's success. He was jealous for what the people were saying about David. He was intimidated by David's success. And several times he tries to kill him. You see, when we place our confidence in physical things, often it results in feelings of insecurity, of inadequacy, and intimidation. 
Because we're constantly comparing with other people. We're thinking, what have I got? What have they got? How have I got more or less? Da, da, da. And how I've gotten Saul. God wanted to use Saul's weakness in that moment to demonstrate his power and strength through him. And yet Saul allowed his fear of people to outweigh his fear of God. You see, Saul was found amongst the baggage because he was intimidated by others. He was jealous of other people's success as we see later on in his life. And that competitive nature within him caused him to hide, to turn away from God and to, 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 to find comfort in the baggage away from everybody else instead of celebrating others' victories that would have been victories not just for David but for Saul. He was one of Saul's men. He was one of Saul's warriors. And yet, instead of sharing in that victory, Saul created a distance. He was jealous of him, and he pushed him away. Saul is also impatient. Saul is not able to trust and obey God's timing. And we see this in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 13. Saul is instructed by Samuel um, when he's fighting the Philistines to wait for Samuel's arrival before Samuel makes a sacrifice. And then when Samuel doesn't come, Saul takes matters into his own hands and he makes the sacrifice. And, and, and as it says in um, 1 Samuel 13, as he finishes, Samuel arrives. Say, like, oh, dude. If you'd have just waited an hour or two. I mean, admittedly, he'd been waiting seven days. But the point is, he hadn't trusted God's timing. He wasn't prepared to wait for God's appointed man to come and to carry out what God had intended. And he takes matters into his own hands. He's impatient. And then Saul, when he's trying to defend himself um, to Samuel in 1 Samuel 13... Um, I'm going to read a few verses from 11 through to 14. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You see, this, this act of disobedience, it demonstrates Saul's heart. You see, he's not able to follow through with what God has called, was what God has appointed. And when the pressure's on and Saul sees the people scattering, he panics. And he makes the sacrifice himself. And in doing so, he shows that he doesn't trust God's plan. He takes the situation into his own hands 
and scrambles together to try and find a solution for himself. Reality is we all have moments like this. But we get to that point and we go, God, where are you? What are you doing in, in this situation? What are you doing with that relationship? But the call of God is to remain faithful in those moments to his word and to his promises. And so Saul finds himself hiding among the baggage because of his faithlessness. He's unable to trust that God will get the job done. He isn't able to trust that God's plan will be worked out. And the reality is that being a Christian is actually about acknowledging the fact that we all carry baggage. And at different moments, even, if I, even as I've just spoken about some of those things about Saul, and there's many more, each of us will have areas where we're tempted to just hide behind the baggage. And we're tempted to just distance ourselves from God. But the reality of becoming a Christian is that each one of us that we're hiding behind those baggages, behind that baggage, that emotional, spiritual baggage, that separation from God, each one of us that have put our trust in Jesus, we've trusted God that he will equip us, that he will empower us to step out from behind that baggage, to take responsibility for our wrongdoing, to take responsibility for our disobedience and turn back to him. You see, it's not something we can necessarily do by ourselves. It's something God does within us. And in fact, the Bible says that where we were covered in shame, and if you like, all of that baggage that covered us and separated us from God in that hidden, in that darkened place, it says that God has shone his light into our hearts. In 2 Corinthians, God's revealed what's going on. God's revealed our weaknesses, our insecurities, our inadequacies. God's revealed those things. But God calls us to walk out of them. God calls us to trust him with those things. And all this mess and muck, the Bible calls it sin. And the way we walk out of those inadequacies, the way we walk out of those insecurities, is to put our trust in Jesus. When we repent, we're turning our back on the old way of doing things. We're saying we're not going to give way to those things anymore. We're not going to be intimidated by others anymore. We're not going to live defined by those insecurities. We're going to put our trust in Jesus, in who he says we are, in who he has called me to be, in the things he set before me to do, not worrying about anybody else. And maybe today, some of us need to step out from behind some of that baggage and put your trust in Jesus, maybe for the first time. Or maybe for some of us, it's coming back to God again. Acknowledging that the price that Jesus paid on that cross for all of our failures, all of our weaknesses, that we can put our trust in him and walk in what the Bible calls newness of life. We can step out of that darkness, out from behind the baggage, into his light. Into what he's called us to.
Now, I know that Saul has got a bit of a bad rap today, um, <laughs> uh, but, but, but when you zoom out on his life, that's, that's, that's Israel's first king. This is the guy. And I, I don't want us to be under any illusion because we can, we can get to this point in the sermon and we can go, well, that was Saul. He was a terrible guy. But what I want us to do is, is I want us to understand that each of us could be Saul. Each of us can live, can choose to live in some of those inadequacies. We can choose to live in that place of comparing ourselves with others, the insecurity that that brings. We can choose to live intimidated by other people. Or we can choose to live impatient with God's timing and seek to control things and hold on to things and look for, 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 for worldly, our own worldly solutions instead of trusting God's timing and his perfection. So maybe you feel inadequate today and that you, you, you're struggling to trust God that he will empower you to live for him and carry out the duties that he's called you to. Maybe even some of the things that he's spoken to you, some of the things prophetically that you're living with, some of the dreams that he's birthed inside of you. And you're struggling to reconcile how, how would God do X, Y, Z in me? It says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, um, and Paul writes of his own weakness. And it says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. He's not strong in his own might. He's strong in the power of God at work within him. Paul is very aware of his own inadequacy. He even says to the Corinthians, when I came to you, I, I, I was slow of speech. I didn't know how to articulate myself. And yet God uses him mightily, powerfully, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Perhaps you're insecure. And you're wrestling with those feelings of insecurity. Perhaps your identity is shaped more by others than perhaps by God. Actually, you look to the affirmation of others. Perhaps you give people too much credence. You give them too much license to have a say over your life, who you are, what you're about. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says this, In love, he predestined us, that's God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God is the instigator. God is the final voice. God is the final authority. God is the one who has chosen you. 
God is the one who has spoken your identity over you. It's as we read his word, as we draw near to him in our hearts, he begins to speak to us about those insecurities. And he says, that's not who I've made you. Why do you fear what men think? Why do you give way to what people are saying? This is who I've called you to be. This is who I say you are. And God says, you're my son. You're my daughter. I've chosen you. Or perhaps there are situations where you feel intimidated. You feel threatened by things around you. Maybe even other people's successes. You can see other people moving forward and you think, why am I stuck at zero? They've gone from naught to 100 and I'm just stuck at the start line. Everyone else is doing well and yet I'm somehow stuck in a rut. Cyclical, it's going round and round and round. And maybe this, this idea of just being intimidated by other people, what others are doing, has got hold of you. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, this, this is very real. It comes close. And yet God calls us to run with endurance the race that is set before us. That we don't look to the left or to the right. We're not paying attention to what is surrounding, but we fix our eyes on Jesus. And the race that he has called us to run. I say us personally, but us corporately. We are called to spur one another on to godliness. We are called to make disciples of one another. That we might all run that race looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Or perhaps finally, and we'll finish here, you struggle with impatience. That you're struggling to trust in God's timing. At times, you're tempted to take things into your own hands and, and, and to control situations, manipulate things so that you can get ahead, so that you can, because you're not happy with where you currently are and you, and you believe that things ought to accelerate. You're not prepared to trust the plan and processes of God to get you where he said he will get you to. Despite verses like Philippians, that the work he has begun in you, he will see through to completion. Despite those things, you're tempted to take hold of things and try and do it in your own strength. It says in uh, Proverbs chapter 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Not he will equip you to make your path straight, he will make your path straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. If you want to trust God's plan and purposes, let him make your path straight. Let him go before you. Let him lead you. Let him open doors. Let him provide opportunities where with God you just, is this right? Is this of you? Seek counsel from one another. Don't be impatient and try and get things done in your own strength, but trust him to see it through to completion. And when we know and trust that God is our king, it's from that place that he empowers us to obey him and equips us to step out from behind that baggage so that we can fix our eyes on God, not concerned with others and being able to hand things over completely to him. Because Jesus is our king. We sang it earlier, king of glory. Jesus is the king. And as we look at these kings, let's not make the same mistake that the people of God did. Give us one. Give us a king. Give us somebody that we can unify around. We want to be found and unified in King Jesus. I'm going to finish with this. Why don't we stand to our feet? I'm going to finish with these verses from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13 to 16. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He, who is the blessed and only sovereign, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen.